Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today I'm joined by New York Times media columnist Ben Smith. This is episode two. The Fourth Watch Podcast is presented by The First TV. Find out more at thefirsttv.com. More on that later. On old, old media and new, new media, resistance journalism and the woke media evolution, and yes, Trump and the failing New York Times, we start at BuzzFeed. Let me bring you back to, to 2011 when you joined BuzzFeed, because I do think that, you know, say what you want about BuzzFeed right now, it, the, the, the success of BuzzFeed was maybe one of the more improbable digital media success stories um, in, over the last, you know, decade. Uh, what made you originally buy into that vision that Jonah Peretti had of what they were going to turn BuzzFeed into? Well, you know, Jonah, I mean, Jonah is a real genius and has always has had the ability to kind of see around these corners in the digital media business um, in, in a just totally remarkable way. And, and when he kind of came to me in 2011, he was, I was talking to a handful of people, and I think I was like his second choice, um, to bring news to BuzzFeed. At a moment when BuzzFeed was, you know, from the outside, it looked like the world's leading cat website. Which it still is. You know, we're always proud to hold that title. But also, what they were actually doing was basically just figuring out what would go viral on Facebook, on, you know, on StumbleUpon, on the sort of social media of that moment, and making that, following those sort of signals. And it was sort of a laboratory for what would go viral on social media, and they noticed that news was one of those things. And I meanwhile, and it took me a while to take that abstraction and realize, right, like that's what I noticed too. Like I'm on Twitter. What I want is to get a scoop that people share because it's new news and or they're excited about it. And um, and that I'm doing this in this very kind of like practical, I'm a reporter trying to report way. And Jonah was doing it in this very like mad scientist abstract way, but in a way it was the same thing. And he was just explaining to me what I was already doing. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it was clearly. And I guess what was what was radical then was thinking about a user who not doesn't go to your website, but who opens on their desktop computer at that point, Twitter.com or Facebook.com. And your challenge as a media company is to get into that feed rather than to bring them to your own feed. I think that was sort of, you know, maybe 2013, 2014 was the extreme of that. And, you know, at BuzzFeed and everywhere else, we were like, OK, we actually need to get people on to stay in our owned and operated ecosystem. But that was the sort of core DNA of the place. And I think why we were so successful in that moment when social was, you know, rising and we kind of rode the growth of social media. Right, right. And it, it, it does seem like there was the ethos of it that you had uh, a unique experience with just from your political blog, you know, even before that, right, in 08 and, and in, into right before you went to BuzzFeed, this idea of what is interesting to people is you know there may be a, a a marketplace that the the I would say the legacy media doesn't think about in terms of what is actually interesting to people about the topics that they are covering uh, on a massive scale, but maybe missing parts of the story. Yeah, just that if you assume your reader is on the internet, you're not going to write a story saying like, "Hey, here's what happened on the internet yesterday." <laughs> right, right, right. Which is most uh, still probably most newspaper articles. Like a thing happened on the internet yesterday. I mean, it's basically we will, cable we news. will explain it to you in chronological order. Right. I mean, it's ca- it's half of it. Uh, cable news right now is like that. Oh, cable news. You read some tweets aloud. 
and steal the best jokes. It's it's kind of unbelievable. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, l- l- let me go. So on on the BuzzFeed front, you you mentioned this obviously, but you know one of the and it's not unique to BuzzFeed, but it is interesting to look back at uh, the you know the the way that you know BuzzFeed and and other digital outlets were. Um, in some ways tied to the algorithm uh, of, of Facebook or of, of social media in general, and, and not even necessarily algorithm specifically, but just sort of the, the decision-making process that came from places like Facebook or, or others. Um, as you look back at that now, was there too much of an emphasis on things that BuzzFeed or, or other digital media outlets could not control? You know, I think that that was in some ways overstated, at least from our perspective. Like we were very focused on what do what are human beings interested in and what do they want to share. And I think the reason that you saw a lot of other places kind of rise and fall up were the board panda, like the you know, break.com. There were like, there were a lot of sort of websites that had a moment in social media because they figured out kind of a hack, like curiosity gap headlines, you know. You won't believe what happens next. Which right. we, people associate that with us because we were on the internet, but we never did those because Jonah always had this view that I kind of adopted that, you know, that if you're doing something that is kind of like a hack on the platform, and isn't adding any value, ultimately the platforms control these ecosystems and they're going to kill you. Yeah. So if you're doing something that is really like taking value away, which the curiosity, which which the you won't believe what happens next. It's like if I'm running that platform, I would rather my reader could read the feed and understand what these words meant rather than just be tricked into clicking on something. Um, so we never did those. And I think we basically were pretty focused on measures of what do people actually share. You know, we would look at what was, you know, what is something that's being shared on Facebook, on Pinterest, and on Twitter? I think human beings actually want to share. If you have something that's only working on one platform, like you might have over-optimized for that platform. Not that we didn't think a lot about the mechanics of each platform, but I think it, I, I think it was we were always, and this is really coming from Jonah, like less technical about it than some of our competitors, and more focused on kind of the psychology of what people actually are interested in and want to share. Right. Yeah. And it also, like, I don't know, I, one of the things, yeah, because you're right. And I think, that, I mean, in a way, like, you know, aggregation and SEO tricks versus original journalism are another axis of that. Like, you can maybe, and you really can, continue to trick um, Google into into hitting your site and you can in fact even like build a website like heavy.com is probably the best example that is like just built as so a service to it. google in a yeah, way yeah and just so good that actually sometimes tell you something you didn't know when you search for a piece of breaking news but ultimately like when you're writing for machines not for human beings that also shows and it's hard to build a devoted audience when you're purely optimizing for sort of when, you, when you've kind of figured out a trick about a platform rather than what people actually want. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about it, but like, I have no idea the business model of heavy.com, but it does seem like a, yet another current 2020 version of this, where if Google wanted to say, you know what, we don't really love heavy.com. And then, then all of a sudden the business is completely gone, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, the what, what I was going to say, you know, yeah, I think people confuse the BuzzFeed model with, in some ways, with the upworthy of like the, you know, the, 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 the very clickbaity kind of headlines. But I actually think one of the things that stood out to me about BuzzFeed, and I, and I think still does in a lot of ways, is it, you know, writing something that it feels 
to maybe the outside observer, like it appeals to a very small group of people, but it actually a- appeals to maybe a smaller group of people than everyone. But it's it's people that love this. Like it, it appeals in a very strong way to that to that group um, in, in a way that obviously is very shareable. Um, but I think this this translates not obviously just in terms of the the viral stuff, but in in the news stuff also. I mean, it, I, I think a lot of what BuzzFeed did right with under under your leadership and, and continues to do is it it is writing for an audience that is specific and and it feels personalized to them. Yeah, and I think you know there are sort of benign and toxic versions of that, right? I think you can you can I mean one you know because people do and I think you saw this sort of evolution of the internet people are interested in sort of like talking about and sharing their identities in a way that can be really lovely, right? Like I remember like we noticed we had a huge post that was like you know 36 things you know know if you grew up in like a Persian Jewish family in New Jersey (laughs) that like one of our authors because like maybe there's not that many people in that community but like every single one of them was like oh my god that's me and they can also you know if you're somebody who's really isolated and like doesn't see yourself represented like it can be really powerful to have a piece of media that's like you know that either you know that can that like helps you feel seen like that's really one of the great beauties of the internet and you know and that helps you find people like you i mean sometimes if you're a nazi you know one of the dangers of the internet or if you're a aspiring isis bomber is it can also help you find people like you and it's you know a lot of the same mechanisms we're going to come back to buzzfeed later and if smith has any trump related regrets about his time there but now what's resistance journalism and what's the status of journalism in the trump era let me ask you about uh, some of your, your other work in the New York Times, because I think it, uh, it kind of brings us to this current moment, which uh, I would say is unique in the media space. You wrote about Ronan Farrow um, and kind of, quote unquote, resistance journalism. You wrote in April about how long it took the New York Times to initially cover the Tara Reid sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden, also how they covered it. Uh, it does seem that we are in, I would just loosely call it the Trump era, a unique moment in the media and politics ecosystem. Uh, do you think that all of this can be traced to the reality TV host that's currently in the White House? Or do you think it's about kind of more of a symptom of where technology and the media is in 2020? And you know, I think it's some of both. Nothing ever has a single cause. I mean, I do think Trump is a huge part of it. And, you know, his, the extent to which his politics are like about the media, like there's a bit of the Republican, like to the extent there is a Republican platform this year, which there mostly is not. There's a you know, there's a whereas paragraph that is like, whereas the media is horribly victimizing us. And I think it it is a strange thing when the most powerful person in the country, in the world, is lying, specific, not, not just about, you know, as politicians often do about, although he does in an extreme way about, you know, observable facts out in the world, but is doing it in a provocative way about the media itself and kind of daring it to like there's no good way to react to that this is like a less than zero sub game and and to the extent to which conservative politics have become so much less about taxation and foreign policy and more about media grievance it puts the media in a very strange position 
Well, in a lot of ways, it elevates the media, I would say. I, you know, and I, I think obviously Donald Trump is, you know, and, and, and honestly, in 2017, 2018, especially being here in Dallas, looking at it from afar, I wondered if it was kind of part of the game. Like if, you know, Trump and Jeff Zucker at CNN, who literally are, are so intertwined. I mean, you know, Jeff Zucker's success at NBC as an entertainment host, as an entertainment executive was so tied to Donald Trump's success at The Apprentice. And, and you know, they were personally oh, yeah, There's close. a great kind of dual biography of them to be for sure. Oh, yeah. And and I did wonder, like, is Trump and Jeff like kind of calling each other, you know, in 2018, like being like, oh, man, this is this is working out so great for both of us. But I actually don't think it is that um, I, I do wonder, like, obviously, Trump knows the media. Obviously, there's there's a kind of sadomasochistic relationship that that I would say each have. But do you think that there's any element of this that's like, man, this is great for business? Sure. Didn't Les Moonves say that 2016? He did. I mean, but he's think- gone now. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I think that like, you know, and, and right. And more broadly, you know, it sort of, li- it lines up with a shift in a lot of media businesses from a advertising model where what you want is to be sort of kind of broadly appealing to lots of people to a subscription model, you know, where what you want is a, you know, is, is dedicated fans who will either directly through your website pay you or through a cable subscription fee. And so that's where you see, you know, both cable news and, news websites are increasingly about, you know, getting a kind of really devoted fandom rather than appealing as possible. And so I think, yeah, I think that's part of what's going on. But I mean, Trump is the sun in the sky and everything kind of revolves around him. Yeah. Well, certainly in the, you know, as I've written the Acela media world, yes. Uh, I don't know if for the average, even consumer of the news he is. I mean, I would say more so than, than normal, but uh, I don't know. I, it, it doesn't feel like there's there's a, a, a parallel to the average cons- news consumer and the average news, you know, executive, host, journalist, et cetera, in terms of how much time is spent thinking about Trump and how every story revolves around him. I don't know. I think when you read the history books of this moment, you're going to read a lot about Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably true. <laughs> um, let, let me ask you a question about you, it, whether you think Donald Trump has to do with this, right? So I've, I've written about the purge newsrooms happening and, you know, we and you have also, obviously, Troy Young at Hearst, um, you know, and then there was also a well-publicized incident with the Times itself with uh, opinion editor James Bennett after the Tom Cotton op-ed. Uh, you know, I don't think that they're necessarily perfectly analogous, but but do you think that the what's happened in the news business around um, executives around journalists uh, is a symptom of the Trump era also? Or again, is this something that's that's happening kind of on parallel tracks? I mean, I think they're all connected, but not in a totally, totally linear way. Like there are also these huge shifts happening in the culture. And, you know, there was a huge conversation about Black Lives Matter this summer. I mean, you know, I think there are a lot of different things happening in parallel. The things that happen in the culture also happen inside every company, including news companies. And so that's part of it too. And does Trump make everything feel a little more extreme and existential to people? Yeah, probably. But I don't know. I think, I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess I have, you know, I, I kind of hesitate a little bit to talk to the time about the internal time stuff that I've kind of half reported because I've either reported or not, but I be, be like, I don't want to be a sort of spokesman for the place. 
Yeah. Well, I think you had an interesting way into it by talking like with Wesley Lowry about not really about the times, but more about, you know, ultimately about the Washington Post, actually, you know, in a lot of ways. But also, I think that that, you know, Wesley represents in a lot of ways where the industry is going um, and in in both how he thinks about maybe objectivity, but also how he uses social media, how, you know, the 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 changing um, dynamics from a, you know, the, the way like the 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 thought process that goes into newsrooms. Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting way into the story. You know, I think it's, I think that the Wesley stuff is really interesting because I think that, you know, he and Marty Baron, who in a way is the embodiment of the old school. Right. Or at least people perceive as that um, is really interesting because when you step back, I if you look at the reporting that Wesley has done, that he won a Pulitzer for and sort of made his career on, you're going to have a lot of trouble finding fault with it. Like, it's very careful. He's really good at getting the police chief on the phone to make his case that, like, these cops weren't behaving badly. He's meticulous. Like, his real big project was gathering, was putting together a database of police shootings that had never existed before and was, like, a huge database that you could use to make whatever argument you wanted. It was a database. Such Um, important work, yeah. And, like, and meanwhile... You know, and, and if you look at the Washington Post every day that Marty runs, meanwhile, it, it does not feel to me like the Washington Post of the 1980s. Like it's a very confrontational publication that goes after Trump really hard. Um, I mean, the difference is that Wesley wants to get into fights with people on Twitter and make arguments on Twitter, and that drives Marty insane. Um, it drives it drove me a little insane when I was an editor. I, I'm not. I, I don't. I'm not sure one of them. I'm not. I, I don't think. Wesley sort of, I think his view is that like what I tweet is totally separate from my journalism, my written work and judge me by the latter and not by the former. Marty's is that the former sort of swallows the latter. I'm not sure it's quite that simple. And I think this is something that's being kind of worked out right now, but I don't, but I gave them an article to edit. You would wind up in a very similar place. Like Marty was never so, I mean, Marty took on the Catholic church. He's not somebody who was like, on one hand, the priests were, very nice priests. On the other, they abuse children, right? Like that's not his thing either. And that idea that like what you have is this confrontation between the sort of woke kids who want to speak the truth and the old people who, you know, want to just sort of both sides everything. It's kind of nonsense. Like those are both strong men. That sounds like the Barry White. You have argument. two generations of journalists who grew up in like very different media ecosystems and have different senses of their roles vis-a-vis institution, different power relative to the institution. Right. And right. and that's all getting sorted out in the most sort of like painful and embarrassing public way possible. Yeah. But I mean, that's it's like, in fact, it's like it's like we're all we're all for the poor Conway kid. <laughs> I, it's uh, this really fighting sad. with our parents in public, <laughs> <laughs> except it's the bosses. Yeah. But that's like that is just yeah, Twitter. And, and, in and, a nutshell. You know, and of course, the you know, the nature of, and they've always and there's always been generational wars inside every business, I would assume. I bet this is as true in like the railroad logistics business as in journalism, but like ours play out in public. And then in the end, it always turns out the younger generation wins. How does Twitter play into our media moment? That's coming up. But first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First TV is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app. 
and more, go to thefirsttv.com. That's thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Ben Smith. But I do think that there is a very clear distinction between a fight happening on an internal Slack channel at the New York Times and a fight happening literally out in public with with where where all of a sudden these camps start coming in with retweets and quote retweets and likes and 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 then this and then stories that get written based on the tweets, which is like literally half the the media apparatus right now. So you know, yeah. Twitter does seem uniquely positioned to. To yeah, amplify and and really you know bring this into the forefront in ways that that you know nothing else has in the past. Yeah, I think that's right, and to and and, and not just amplify and bring it to the forefront, but also kind of feed itself and drive and drive polarization. I guess really. Yeah, let me ask you this because one of the things I've I've really appreciated about you, whether it's on Twitter or at BuzzFeed and now at the Times, is you're willing to engage in in, in kind of an introspective. And kind of curious way, I would say um, that yeah, I'll I. I'll talk to anyone, even you. <laughs> even me, I don't know if I'm on, like the <laughs> even you side of this, but uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, look, I try to do the same. I mean, I really, I'm, I'm both. I think it's it's healthy to be kind of you know uncomfortable and talk to people that that maybe disagree with you, which I don't think necessarily you and I are are in that scenario. Um, but I also think it's uh, you, you know it's 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 valuable. I mean, I think it's good to get out of the bubble and to you know and to 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 reconsider things in then especially reconsider kind of the status quo. And it does feel like there is less and less of that. Um, people, I would say like you are rarer and rarer, at least publicly. I think I'm like a relic of a different internet, honestly. Like, you know, it used to be that you would be on Twitter making journalistic decisions and having people question them or yell at you about them or cheer them. And you could sort of engage them and try to explain what you're doing. And like, maybe it turned out you were wrong and you could change it. And they would, and you would leave that interaction feeling like, okay, we had like a real conversation here and I learned something and maybe we still disagree or maybe we don't, but it was, but the intent was good. And now increasingly on Twitter, you're like, wow, I'm talking to a hundred people who have either insights, a Slack channel that I don't know about, or inside a discord channel, I don't know about made up their minds that are like, have come to Twitter, not to raise questions, but to like brigade you. And that's just boring. And like, nobody's getting persuaded. There's no, I mean, there are exceptions, like, but a lot of interaction now on social media, in a way, social media is where you go, is the public space where you go to fight about the ideas that you've hashed out in more private spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I honestly think it's about introspection also. I, I think that there like, is- Like the, the group Accuracy in Media got like hundreds of people to send identical emails to me the other day, like the way Media Matters used two years ago. <laughs> And it's just like, what am I supposed to do with that? You What's, know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's so meaningless once it becomes like scale is almost meaningless in that sense, right? Like it, it doesn't feel personal, yes. it doesn't feel valuable. Um, uh, but also, I honestly do think that introspection is a huge thing about, about this. I mean, I I will, you know, uh, this this will be cut because it's not timely, but I will be writing tonight about how wrong I was about the coverage of the RNC um, because, I, you know, I, I thought that there would be less of it. And clearly it was actually more of it, I feel like, than the DNC. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe there's what, what are the reasons why? That's interesting. But I do think that there is a sense of like and it's almost like. I think of as receipts journalism, like people are so afraid of being called out for getting something wrong or for getting, you know, and, and it's like, well, you know, we're, if we're, if we're being out there, you're going to get stuff wrong. You're going to, you're going to, and, and admitting you're wrong is actually not uh, a negative thing. Um, yeah, no, I think that's right. We're, 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 we get stuff wrong all the time. Like I mean, when they, like people, I think journalists like to say in a slightly chest beating way, the journalist is like journalism is the first draft of history with like the emphasis on the word history. 
but I guess I tend to see the emphasis on the word first draft. Does Smith have any regrets about his time at BuzzFeed? We'll go down that list. That's coming up next. But first, the next edition of Blocked. That is uh, stories of ridiculous media Twitter, people that have blocked me on Twitter, ways of getting to know me a little bit better. Uh, This one is Alec Baldwin. So, first of all, the nicest thing I can say about Alec Baldwin is he had an incredible set on his short-lived MSNBC show. Now you'll find the actor doing his, uh, I don't know, moderate to subpar imitation of Trump on SNL regularly when he's not physically threatening journalists. Back in 2013, Baldwin had been going through a sort of self-imposed Twitter hiatus. He was briefly suspended by MSNBC, then he went and left Twitter for a little while. In July, he made his Twitter return to make fun of Florida, then he quickly deleted that tweet. Then in November of 2013, he denied using a term, which I will just say a C-S-ing F, when he called a journalist a homophobic slur. So he denied that by saying that he didn't use the F word, but didn't deny using the C-S-ing word. Anyway, he tweeted, if TMZ asserts that I use an anti-gay epithet, I will sue them. And then I asked him, well, what do you assert you said? Which Just sort of a question. He then blocked me, and I am still blocked to this day. Status, still blocked, blocked on November 14th, 2013. Now, back to Ben Smith. Let me ask you about some things at BuzzFeed. Tell me if you think that they were, that, that in retrospect, you would have done any differently. Uh, you wrote in December 2015. I'm now going to tell you, I'm now, having said that, I'm now going to tell you that I would never have done anything at all differently this morning. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. Uh, in December of 2015, you wrote in a memo that it's entirely fair to call Trump a mendacious racist. Do you think that was the, the right tactic, looking back on it? No, I, I mean, I was like, and it was also, it was interesting, you know, I was, it was, it was a, you know, we had a policy on Twitter that you, that you basically about social media, really about Twitter, that you shouldn't be, um, we don't want people being partisan, but that if you are, but if, but that if, but, but that said, you can get into policy arguments. It's sort of an imperfect yeah. compromise thing, but it's like, if, you know, if you grew up in the West Bank and you have a point of view on whether something is inside the green line or outside the green line or is or isn't a settlement and you want to argue with people on Twitter about that, like God help you because it's no fun. You are a knowledgeable person who is having an argument with people in good faith and that's fine. If if the argument is of the form Mitt Romney is evil because he's a Republican or Hillary Clinton is evil because she's a neoliberal, like that's partisan and like that's boring and it makes your and it sort of makes it harder for your colleagues to do their jobs. And please don't do that. Um, And so the question was, is, you know, Donald Trump is out there lying and saying racist stuff. Is it and we we aren't like in a huge rush to call him a racist in a headline. Like, I don't I mean, I'm fine with that. I just don't think it's that high stakes. Um, But if my reporters on social media want to say hey, this is obviously mendacious racism when he says the Central Park Five were guilty. Um, you know, what, am I going to tell them not to? I'm like, no, that seemed fine. It was true. I mean, I think we were sort of early. And I think we were early to some of the Trump stuff for sort of coincidental reasons. McKay Coppins had done a, um, a profile of Trump, very, very dead-on accurate profile, whose only flaw was that it treated his presidential campaign as a joke. Yep. But That was amazing, yeah. McKay had gotten... Um, he had planned to spend a little time with Trump and then fly back to him to New York. And there was a snowstorm. He wound up flying back with him from New Hampshire to Mar-a-Lago and getting stuck there for a day. And when Trump didn't like the piece, he just made he made up all this just libelous stuff about McKay hitting on a waitress named Bunny or something. I mean, you know, McKay is a 
a Mormon, very right? devout yeah. family man and a Mormon, not that Mormons or anyone else are free from sin, and, but it didn't, you know, ring true. And it, and we were like, oh, okay, so he just lies about people in this just outrageous way. And you know it because he's lying like you, you're lying about you, right? Like, so it's not complicated. Um, and so I think we were a little ahead. And then, and then McKay, like, so then we wouldn't, couldn't get into events. And we were like, oh, okay, this is a different kind of thing. This isn't the sort of old Republican and Democrat kind of ref working with the mainstream media. This is a totally different animal. And also, you know, a strategy of lying. It's different. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly think calling him racist is one thing. Mendacious feels like almost an editorializing that maybe, you know, elevates him on some level. But that was, you know. Because it's like, a would lying have been better? You don't like the you don't like the polysyllabic Latin roots. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, it's just sort of a true statement. Maybe it was a little bit of a flourish, but I did, it just meant like for, this is a true statement. What are we supposed to do about it? And that's right. been like the big challenge for media. It's like it's an unprecedented Trump. I mean, I think there are two ways of seeing it on the left and on the right. Actually, there are people on the left who think that the mainstream media should have seen and called out what they saw as essentially like incipient fascism in George W. Bush's and Mitt Romney's Republican party. And that by not calling Romney a theocratic fascist, we were like failing to speak the truth <laughs> Yeah, because Romney is really the same as Trump. Um, and there are people on the right who think that the media, just as like, we, we told you the media was out to get Romney and you couldn't quite see it unless like you held a special lens up to your eye. Like, but now you can see they're really going after Trump and like what we're in. See, it's always been the same. The media has always hated Republicans and been out to get them. And oh. even though with Romney, like superficially, it looked like he was being treated fair, like fairly, like that's just because you didn't have our special decoder ring. Right. And right. now it's all out in the open. And I think, you know, there's a sort of stop clock element to them. Like maybe they were there's there are these like stop clocks who are sort of now right and are now saying like we were right all along. When in fact, it's just so obvious that Trump is a new phenomenon. He's unprecedented in American history. And the idea that like that he's just the same thing as Mitt Romney and the forces are in sharper relief is so ludicrous. And I, and it sort of embarrasses me when I hear people make those arguments. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, I was at CNN in 2012, you know, covering at every debate, every election night, and there was no effort from what I saw. And I would say I was as close as anyone to tip the scales towards Barack Obama over Mitt Romney. Um, and I would say it feels very different watching from afar now. Um, but uh, but it does feel also like there's not just a sense of let's call him a racist, but let me tell you how it makes me feel. Um, and I would say this largely comes from cable news with CNN and MSNBC, but that's also, I think, part of the difference. Yeah, cable news is its own, obviously. Yeah. Animal. How about refusing to take uh, RNC money during the 2016 election? So that wasn't my call, and it was not something that was popular in the newsroom. Okay. Like I, I wouldn't, I think I wouldn't have made that call if it was my decision, but it wasn't like the thing about, you know, the wall between advertising and editorial is it means advertising doesn't influence editorial, but it also means editorial doesn't influence advertising. And I think it was a very difficult thing because, you know, we were early in producing branded content. Like we weren't like most websites, it was, you know, do you allow ads to appear in targeted ways on your website through DFPs, through the whole you know, insane system that we have built of ad tech, right. but you aren't out there making them. At BuzzFeed, we had a team of, you know, ad creatives who would be making, who were, you know, who were hand making ads with people, right? Like they mm. were walled off from the newsroom. Yeah. And I think Jonah felt like he couldn't ask them at a moment when Trump was, you know, attacking some of their families, for instance, around immigration 
to, to go and make ads for Donald Trump. I don't know. I think that's a hard executive decision in the advertising business that I would not have wanted to have to make. Right. Publishing the Steele dossier? What about it? Yeah. Still still do it. No regrets. Yes, I think that was the right. Oh, yeah. No regrets. I, I knew you were going to say that, but I just, uh, you know. Smith joined the New York Times earlier this year. We'll end with how things are going at the legacy to digital media behemoth and the fourth watch lightning round. Six questions in 60 seconds. But first, a great moment in journalism. Do you ever wonder why important stories happening in your community or around the world don't seem to be getting much coverage from the legacy media? Here's one reason. They're busy investigating whether a three-year-old child built a replica of the White House with Legos. During her RNC speech, Ivanka Trump mentioned a cute little anecdote that her three-year-old son had built a replica of the White House out of Legos. Instantly, journalist and podcaster Andrea Bernstein of WNYC and ProPublica tweeted that she thought she had a scoop. OMG, she started, which so you knew something really good was about to come next. Ivanka is telling a story about her son Joseph building a Lego model of the White House, and she told the same story about herself once building a Lego Trump Tower. That story was made up. The tweet was shared thousands of times by many in the media. By the time the RNC was over, Business Insider had assigned two reporters to cover the important story based on Bernstein's tweets. It included subheadlines like, if the Lego White House is real, where is it? It later became clear that Ivanka Trump had actually shared a picture of her son Joseph with the Lego White House, but Andrea Bernstein was not done. Oh no, Carl Bernstein had Watergate. It made his career. Andrea Bernstein... She thought she had Lego gate. So it continued. The WNYC reporter put in a formal request with the White House and told her Twitter followers about it, bringing with it perhaps the most insane tweet by a media member of 2020. Andrew Bernstein tweeted, Ivanka Trump tweeted a photo of her son Joseph with his grandfather at the Resolute desk with the Lego White House. I've asked the White House if three-year-old Joseph indeed built it of his own initiative and if he had assistance. Will tweet reply if and when I get a response? In the end, Bernstein got an actual official White House response. Joseph had built it himself. That tweet got 48 retweets. Business Insider updated their story in several ways, including with photographic proof of the replica Lego White House. Ultimately, though, they changed just one word from the original headline, removing the word suspiciously. Just another day on the Internet for the media in 2020. It would be truly hilarious if it weren't so sad. That is a great moment in journalism. Back to Ben Smith. In your debut media column, uh, as in your new role in March, the New York Times, you sort of went off, went after your employer in, in a way. You wrote, the Times so dominates the news business that it has absorbed many of the people who once threatened it. The former top editors of Gawker, Recode, and Quartz are all at the Times, as are many of the reporters who first made Politico a must-read in Washington. Obviously, you didn't write this, but it was sort of implied you two uh, were absorbed uh, from BuzzFeed. Quite the debut. What made you want to start your new role there? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the strangeness of that column right now is that you're writing about media and one of the really, really central players is your employer. And you either have to kind of ignore that or try to kind of deal with it in its complexity. And I figured it was worth trying to take that swing off the bat just to buy myself a little breathing room. Yeah, it uh, it, I mean, on you know, on the positive side, you know, it seems that the New York Times has been uniquely successful in moving from legacy media to to new digital media. I mean, perhaps not only the most successful, but maybe one of the only that's been successful. I, I read that Chartbeat CEO Tony Hale wrote a column recently about how there are more New York Times subscribers in Dallas than subscribers of the local Dallas Morning News. Same thing in Seattle and, and many yeah. cities. I mean, why, why do you think it is that the New York Times has been able to dominate the space? 
Well, I think that, you know, the way that the sort of economics of digital media work, and to some degree, there aren't that many winners. Um, so it's not, so I think it was pr sort of inevitable that there would only be a few, at least at this particular moment. Like why, you know, Google is the biggest search engine in Seattle and um, also in, in Dallas, right? You know, it's not, it's not just news companies. It's that when you have this, when you provide, you know, when you have massive scale, you can take your, you know, if you have a lead and you're producing the best search engine or the best news product or whatever else, you can, you know, take your revenue, reinvest it and making it even better, build on your lead over the next best thing. And pretty soon you have a kind of monopoly or an oligopoly in a lot of these digital businesses. I mean, you know, a lot of people in Dallas probably more use Amazon than use whatever the leading Dallas home shopping website is also. And so I think, again, like news isn't exactly parallel to those things, but I think you do see this tendency toward monopoly in a lot of these digital businesses. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's an interesting analogy though, right? Because like, do, do you really see the New York Times in that space as kind of like, not just literally the New York Times, but a news product that is, you know, getting close to monopoly size? You know, I don't think, I think, I think, A, it's, you know, it's a business that is a tiny rounding error compared to Amazon or Google. Um, and B, these aren't interchangeable. So search engine is truly an interchangeable commodity. That's not true of news businesses, right? You may, news organizations have their own identities and voices and politics. And so there, you know, and, and there are other things happening in this moment that mean that there's probably not going to be one universal news outlet for the U.S. There's not going to be a BBC style kind of dominant sin single player in the U.S. Right. Well, and and actually, you know, it's it's in some ways you've you've written about this also. There's there's sort of the two ends of the spectrum. There's the New York Times that is you know so dominant compared to say you know the the local newspapers or even other national publications. And then you've got kind of on the on the far end of the spectrum places like Substack, where you know now Andrew Sullivan is just sort of a a his own media brand. Matt Taibbi is just his own media brand. I mean, where do you see the the delineation happening in that way, and where where that's where is that going? I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think, again, you sort of see that kind of distribution, that power law distribution in lots of businesses where it's like you can either be a huge, huge company or you can be tiny, you know, and that there is a long tail of individuals who can make a living, but who are like, you know, who have no leverage against the platforms because they're, you know, solo operators. Um, and I think, you know, even Substack, I think it's challenging for them to hold those people together. And why shouldn't they just go by, you know, use Ghost or some other piece of software to, um, you know, to, to, to just be individuals making money off their off their followers and people who like them. And, you know, a thousand really passionate fans or can can make, you know, can can pay your bills. And, and I think for certain kinds of journalism, that's great. I actually think for local you know, you, you could have a sort of what used to be called kind of a hyper-local blogger or something, you know, who finds 500 people who really care in that neighborhood about real coverage of that neighborhood. And I think that's a real model for a kind of Substack type publication. Um, but I think a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff in the middle gets lost, like, you know, not, unclear who covers City Hall. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, to that point, I mean, uh, you know, in that initial column, I guess, sort of on the, we talked about the positive side of the New York Times, on the negative side, you write that the success of the New York Times may actually be bad for journalism as a whole. And, you know, we're about, you know, six months or so from that column. Uh, you still feel that way? I mean, and, and why do you think that is? I mean, I just think that, that that trend toward, you know, big, toward like on one hand, giant, giant central players and the other atomized individuals isn't a healthy public sphere. It makes, in a way, makes, I mean, I think it makes the New York Times too important 
like if you see how much you know and people including the president of the united states but also people who work at the new york times care about new york times headlines the failing new york times i just think (laughs) you know i think you know the world no single media outlet is that important right Right. Well, let me ask you this, because obviously, you know, we mentioned this, but, uh, you know, you came from, you know, came to The New York Times earlier this year from BuzzFeed, where you ran a newsroom of hundreds of people doing, you know, lots of important journalism and and some also kind of fun viral stories. Uh, What does it say about BuzzFeed uh, and or does it say anything about BuzzFeed that you left that uh, group as editor in chief for the, the media media columnist role at The New York Times? Yeah. Well, sorry. So what's the, sorry, you lost me on the question. Well, I guess, what does it say about BuzzFeed or does it say anything about BuzzFeed? I don't think it really says anything. It more says that I was, you know, I was in a job for eight years, just the longest I'd ever done anything. And it was sort of time for me to go. And I love reporting and this was a good opportunity. No, I don't think it says much. I think to the extent that people thought it said something, um, that kind of went away when they hired as my replacement, the former investigations editor, this, you know, much more distinguished journalist than I am named Mark Schiff's. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, let me uh, move to a lightning round, six questions, 60 seconds. First, where were you born? Uh, Upper West Side of Manhattan. You're the media columnist at the New York Times. What is one benefit and one cost of the role? Well, the benefit is, I would say, can I give you two benefits? Yeah, Which please. are both the obvious scale and prestige of the platform, but then also the just the meticulous, thoughtful editing from two really skilled editors you get with every piece. It's really nice. Um and the cost is that everybody interprets everything you do as some kind of New York Times conspiracy when really you're just like some weirdo hanging out in upstate New York doing whatever you want mostly. <laughs> Who is someone who's been a mentor for you? Um, I mean, I had great editors early in my career. Seth Lipsky of the New York Sun was one. Peter Kaplan of The Observer was another. John Harris with the Politico was another. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Oh man, there's no upside in this. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even know what would surprise people. I like I like lots of people. All right. Well, who is one person professionally or personally that that you that you like that may you know not be uh, at the New York Times? Um, somebody who I like. I feel like I should just say you. Um, <laughs> the uh, I'm trying to think what I what I've been reading or subscribing to or. Um, well, let me go to that question then, because yeah, you know, let, let me let me think about that. I, I don't I don't have an immediate answer. Who's one person? I, yeah, I podcast. I've been I've been having to like shuttle my kids all over America lately, so I'm newly listening to enormous amounts of podcasts. All right. I want to sort of like find the right one. Well, a good podcast that'd be good. Uh, how about one person in the media you think's really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Zainab Tufekci. Good timely, timely <laughs> reference. Uh, one year from yes, today. I just wrote that column, but she's a really thoughtful, interesting person who isn't quite partisan enough to cut through. Oh, the other person who I am sort of obsessed with right now is Kaiser Quo, who runs the who runs the Seneca podcast, and it's just like I feel like educate giving me an education about China. Interesting. Okay. Well, I followed Zainab, so I'll, I'll follow this new person. Uh, one year from today, what is one prediction you have for the media? I think maybe it's a little technical, but I think you're going to find a business like Substack increasingly threatened by new tools that allow writers just to go off on their own with no, with no, without paying a percentage to a platform. There's a, a tools like there's one called a nonprofit called Ghost that I think you're going to hear about a lot more. 
Interesting. Ben, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Ben Smith for joining us. That is episode two of the Fourth Watch podcast. The Fourth Watch started as a newsletter in December 2019. You can subscribe. It's free three times a week. Fourthwatch.media. That's fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. His uh, Instagram is Super Duper Music. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. Thanks for joining me on the second episode of the Fourth Watch Podcast. If you're liking this, you can subscribe, give a five-star rating, you can review it, uh, you can follow on Spotify or wherever you listen. Next episode, I'm joined by Vox senior politics reporter Jane Coaston. Stay safe. Talk to you then.